a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. What do babies' thoughts sound like before they learn to speak? Mm, or do they? Do they? Do you have right. thoughts without words? Do you have thought without words? Yeah. Oh, do you guys think in words? Do you think in your own voice or do you hear a different voice? Uh, definitely my own voice. My own voice. Although, if I've been listening to something, like if I've, I've been listening to a podcast or something, yeah. or like a book or yeah. something that is on audio, I'll find that like that voice is then what's in my head. Okay, <laughs> I, okay, yeah. I've totally been there. All like of a sudden, when Thomas I... Soul is just <laughs> in my head. <laughs> hey, that's a good one to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've totally been there. Like when I read uh, 12 Rules for Life. Like, of course, I heard it in Jordan Peterson's head. I think I don't. It's really hard for me. I've been asked this question before about, like, do I think in my own voice? I'm honestly not sure. Hmm. I don't think you can think in your own voice in so much as I guess, like, I I am interpreting what I think as me saying it because I know what my own voice sounds like. But I don't hear it when I think it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. That's a fair distinction. Okay. That's fair. I have some thoughts. This is going to sound like I'm like bordering on like multiple personalities, but I have some thoughts that <laughs> legitimately feel like so like other than me that sometimes it's just it's shocking that they show up and I'm like, "Where did you come from? I didn't want to think about that right now." And uh yeah, I don't know, just carry they carry different energies, you know. Hmm. Sounds very weird. That's true of everything. Unless I'm just, I can't speak for everyone, but I, I definitely always have like, you know, you've got the running thoughts and you're like, what? Where'd that come from? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're trying to trace it back. You're like, where did I even, like, what? Like, it's so foreign. You're just like, how? My least favorites like, what are the weird, that? like, almost like sadistic, fantastical thoughts. Like. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. You know, of. like you're. You, you, you're driving on a two-way highway and you're like, what would it be like if I swerved into the other lane? Like, no, I don't want to think about that, but I did just now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. No, 100%. It's very weird. Or like, I, I got this feeling a lot when we were like, um, when I was trying to do a lot of climbing or like backpacking and stuff is like, you're up on switchbacks, right? On Sundance Pass. And you look like the distance down the slope and you're like, mm-hmm. But if I jump, like, what would it be like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Not, I don't like those kind of thoughts. It's very weird. Like creeping in from some other part of your brain. Yeah. It's not, you're like conscious. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, thought. it's not just like a curiosity though. Like, I don't know if it's superstition or something, but it's like, man, if I let that thought like grow enough, like would I actually do it? Would I follow it? Because I tricked myself into thinking it was just a thought or something. I don't know. Hmm. No clue. We're opening a whole can it's of like worms a whole can here. Of worms. <laughs> I know. 
It's very wild. Very wild. That that reminds me of like the maybe it's a wives tale, but like apparently apparently a lot of people that do LSD have like wanted to jump off things and some of them have mm. and, and they, like while they're high. Yeah. And then it's like apparently a problem. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like uh. interesting, like uh, having those thoughts come forward and then maybe not being a, able to discern that because you're under the influence of something. Mm. Right. Sure. Oh. That's a dangerous position yeah. to be in. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a endemic problem amongst. Do you think? I have no idea users. how many people use LSD. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder, like, people but, talk about like the spirit of ayahuasca. Like, I wonder, like, if plants, like plant species themselves, do they have like spirits or thoughts to them? You know, and that's what they're that's the experience like, of us getting high yeah. on them is like we are like encountering the spirit of marijuana. You know, maybe, maybe they're, maybe I'm the not plants high right now, I promise. <laughs> maybe the plants are actually projecting what they're not able to do. They're like, oh, God, I wish I could move. God, I wish I could jump off this cliff. But I'm stuck here. Whoa. This stupid little plant. Whoa. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, now I finally have a body to take. And then you're like, of. are what you eat. Oh, so you, you know, whoa. I could see this going somewhere. Y'all are both high right well, now. No, I swear I'm you not. Actually, I swear. actually, so to pull it back from the illicit stuff, <laughs> I am on day six right now of a caffeine-free experiment. Hey, oh. very nice. Because I, I'm going to sound like classic guy who listens to a lot of podcasts, but I heard a podcast um, <laughs> that broke down the book by Michael Pollan called This Is Your Brain on Plants, and- Okay. The the book is broken into three sections. One talks about opiates. I forget what the second category is, but the third one is caffeine. And uh, like he did a bunch of experiments and looked into a bunch of data about the effects of caffeine. And when he starts describing uh, what it's like for pe- people to be legitimately caffeine dependent, like, like you know um anecdotally people say like i literally can't i i don't feel like i can function until i have my first cup of coffee in the morning you know like there's something mm-hmm. about having that cup of coffee that actually resets me to like just a baseline of functionality whereas without it you're kind of you feel like you're running on more than empty um or less than empty i guess mm-hmm. and uh man he was describing what it's like to be caffeine dependent i'm like Oh, way too many of those line up for me. <laughs> so, um, after last work week, I decided to kind of just try caffeine free experiment and, uh, Friday was fine. I just, I slept in and it was fine. Saturday though, guys, I don't normally get headaches, but holy crap. I got a headache on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So bad. Yep. Actual withdrawal. Like full on withdrawal symptoms. Yikes. And, uh. I I think I napped like three times on Saturday because I I was just like, I had no energy for anything. And then I hurt, I hurt my back on Sunday, but I was just, even then I was, I had hurt my back, but I was laying in bed. I'm like, I could be napping right now, but I don't feel like napping. You know, I actually feel Mm -hmm. okay. And I'm, I'm going to finish this experiment this Friday. I want to experience, like I'm halfway through this work week and I want to experience kind of my energy I'm taking notes on my energy level throughout the work day without any coffee 
right. to see what that's like instead of relying on the first cup at like 5.15 when I wake up and then having a second cup around 10 a.m. to get me through the rest of the day. So at some point, coffee becomes a ritual. Totally, uh, it does. What are you substituting for that? Or are you doing any sort of hot beverage in the morning? Or Yeah, no, I'm actually not. I just like cut it cold turkey. I've just been basically whatever I was drinking in right. coffee, I just replaced with double the amount of water. Hey, nice. Um, yeah, and honestly, so far, I feel really good. What I'm really looking forward to, though, is I'm going to make a cup of coffee on Friday with my uh, my No Normal People coffee blend because it's delicious. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually experiencing what like that much caffeine off of one cup of coffee actually should feel like if my uh, baseline is caffeine free. Good point. You're rebouncing off the walls. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to like being mindful of that experience and just like paying attention to my energy and paying attention to the effects, you know, mm-hmm. it's fun. It's fun. Self-experimentation with something as benign as caffeine is good. <laughs> I like it. Wait, I'm all for it. But I did not swear off alcohol, my friends, because tonight I'm drinking a delicious 11-year-old Lagavulin often Offerman Limited. And that's my beverage. Are you still working th- you're still working through that bottle, is that right? Yep. Yep. This is the one that uh This is the one we cracked open when I was in Bozeman. Aha. Mm. Yes. The good stuff. The smoky boy. The smoky. Yeah, I I didn't even uh, have 16 for you to try. 16 is honestly, if memory serves, I think it honestly is a little smokier than this one. The finish is more harsh. Mm -hmm. This one, because they finished it in the Guinness cask, it's a lot, it's a very syrupy and like smooth finish with a lot of like dark chocolate on the palate, whereas the 16 doesn't have that kind of finish. Well, we are going in the opposite direction from <laughs> those rich flavors to something a little bit more tropical or summery, to say the least. Oh, excellent. We are finally <laughs> drinking ourselves a daiquiri. Ayo! Which definitely is one of the classics. Kat, you said you never had one before? I don't recall ever having one okay you took a sip it is delicious okay it is um i think i always thought a daiquiri was going to be a sweet thick thing you can blend them but yeah and this is not that at all this is super refreshing clean light limey Mm -hmm. i like it clean light and and limey really (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a cleaning product (laughs) <laughs> but it is really simple. It's two ounces of light rum, like a white rum, Bacardi's, what I used. One ounce of lime juice and half an ounce of simple syrup. And then you just shake it. Mm. Now, one note here. I was taught uh, when I was a bartender that you're supposed to shake daiquiris with your normal like um, ice cubes and then in your shaker you put one large rock. I saw you do that. And I don't know why but apparently has something to do with it. It affects the texture. Hmm. I don't know if that's real life but I just do it because it's a tradition so I will do it. But I do want to read a little 
section here from the bar book. Well, the ultimate bar book by Mitty Helmich. This has been the book that I get a lot of my recipes out of um, just because there's so many interesting recipes in there. And for all of the classic cocktails, they usually give some sort of little summary and some little history. Uh, so according to legend, around the late 1890s, in Cuba's Daiquiri Mountains, an American engineer came up with this now famous rum-based concoction in an attempt to please his guests once the gin had disappeared. Given rum's status as the highly esteemed, in quote, milk of Cuba, however, it's likely that this combination had been enjoyed before. Soon, Havana became the Daiquiri Mecca, especially the El Floridita Bar, where legendary bartender Constantino Riba Laguia introduced the frozen version and elevated the daiquiri to perfection. By straining the drink after blending it with crushed ice, he avoided further dilution while retaining the frosty character. In its pure form, the daiquiri is simple yet sublime, blending the delicate sweetness of rum with sugar and the juice of one lime. The secret of a perfect one is not just in the balance of ingredients, but in squeezing the lime with your fingers to allow the oils from the rind to mingle with the juice, creating the daiquiri's signature intensity and flavor. Always use fresh lime. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and I always hand squeeze all of my citrus. Fantastic. <laughs> all you people with fancy citrus squeezer things. Don't be so lazy. Get that juice in those cuts. Get into yeah. it. Right. Feel the wounds. <laughs> Feel the wounds. <laughs> Reminds you you're alive. Yeah. So yeah, I could basically chug these. Torna, if you good. if you took the energy back just like two more clicks and read that book softly, that could be my next like fall to sleep <laughs> to podcast. Just you reading okay. recipes and histories of drinks. <laughs> a lot of people like my voice. Uh, it would be fun to read I think that would be, audio stuff. That would be awesome. <laughs> I'd be into it. It's very well, relaxing. Talk about having a you know a big head there. If I knew that like, people were falling asleep to me reading books, I'd be like, yeah, that's me. I'm helping people sleep. Right. I'm promoting. <laughs> so I better not sleep or something. I need to be more humble. Right. That's okay. <laughs> Torna, I don't feel like we talk enough about, or I don't, I don't know if we've mentioned all that much on the show that you used to be a bartender. Would you talk about your history where you used to work and like what? what yeah. Your I mean, it's a brief were? history. It's an unimpressive history and it's a, but it's where you <laughs> caught the mixology bug. So confounding history. Well, no, I actually, the reason I wanted to work at a bar is because I had caught the mixology bug long before I lived in Bozeman. So back in the day, I lived with Mr. Garrett Sis, who I did my undergraduate with at Rocky Mountain College, as well as Crosspath up in Bozeman while he was doing his master's. And uh, we both kind of liked cocktails. And because we lived together, we just started buying bottles together and constantly mixing. And then at home, we started throwing cocktail parties where we would just charge people like 30 bucks and he was a great cook. I'm a great cook. So we would do like food and cocktails and have like some people come over, like 10 people would come over. We'd get like 300 bucks, which could pay for all the alcohol and dinner and stuff. 
And then uh, once I moved up to Bozeman, I was like, oh, I need a job. So I just started looking around, hunting at different bars, trying to get like a bar back position or a bartending position. And I was fortunate enough to get hired over at Open Range, which is a nice cocktail bar and steak restaurant in Bozeman, um, just as a bar back and kind of just started to learn some of their signature drinks and learn a lot more about classic drinks at a pretty good foundation um, just from the hobby. Uh, yeah, and learned a bunch there and didn't work there that long. I think I only worked there like six months. To this day, I don't know why. They fired me. Aw. What? I was the most recent hire. Things were really slow. And, uh, yeah, I got fired. And to this day, I'm like, I don't know what I did, but I'm still going there all the time. I don't. Yeah. It's one of those perplexing things, you know? But. It's the direction your path was meant to take. Absolutely true, because that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. For the last three years, I was like, oh, I don't have any money. I need a job. And then you started. And then I started painting and yada, yada, yada. The rest is history. There you go. And now i am got my construction Mr. business. Mr. Independent so. Contractor. That's true. <laughs> Look at me being all independent. An individual. You. Take your <laughs> Take your personal responsibility by the horns. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's very. I don't need anyone. So it's just me. In six months of being behind the bar, is there one drink that you hear people order and you're like, "Oh gosh, why are you ordering that? That is so basic." Dirty martinis. Oh right, of course. That's that's because you hate. I yeah. hate that. <laughs> that doesn't make them wrong. <laughs> I uh, maybe I don't know. I actually don't even like dirty martinis yeah. either. So why would you put brine? olive brine in a drink my mind can't fathom it i don't even like i don't like bloody marys that much but like i I understand them the flavors make sense and i can sip on a little baby sized margarita like when i order mar or when i sorry when i order a bloody mary like i need to get it off the kids menu it needs to be tiny so you know because you can't drink that much you just don't like that much yeah so I'm like, look, I know I'm older than 12, but can I get the child's Bloody Mary? The child's Bloody Mary, right. Child, yeah, right. They always have those on kids' menus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you can put it in the sippy cup or not. Doesn't matter. But, like, <laughs> if it's in the sippy cup, like, give me the meat and the veggies on the side. The meat and the veggies. My boyfriend, Steve, will literally suck down Bloody Marys. Like, we, we were backpacking this weekend in the Beartooths and... um. We've kind of developed this tradition after when we get back into town, whatever town from a backpacking trip, we we always well, we always go and eat and he always gets bloodies and I always get beer. And we were joking that like our order as a couple is three Bloody Marys because <laughs> I have one and yeah. he has two. Oh, yeah. And like <laughs> he's hilarious. That's impressive. I could not. I think once he had like literally five. Oh, my. I yeah I knew some like people just at yeah. brunch. <laughs> uh, a, a long time ago, I, I knew I knew some people, and they loved uh, they loved Bloody Marys. And every time we do brunch or anything like that, it was just like Bloody Marys at the wazoo. Yeah. And so like I just drank them because they're great. I, I didn't mind them, but yeah, I, I'd have like one modest, yeah, bloody, and then they'd just drink and drink and drink bloodies. Like, yeah, <laughs> we'd be out eleven o'clock at night. 
Get a Bloody Mary. That's, yeah, that's what Steve is. Filter night, any time of day. Rain or shine, it's like the post office. Look, yeah. any, any, you, at any point, Bloody Marys could be on the menu. It's yeah. it's a drink and a snack. Like it's, it, it is. It's like a full it's meal. A supreme, I wouldn't go that far, but it's a combo at least. It's like an appetizer <laughs> anyone, combo. Okay, hear me out. <laughs> Has anyone thought about like getting like some fresh, hot, like fried chicken drumsticks? Put like, that in your and like right when you get it, boom, and then it's like soaked in the tomato, and then you eat down the chicken leg. I bet Steve would be keen on that. That sounds good. Yeah, then that is really you a full meal. Get wings, I. <laughs> right? No, but it's fun. It's nice if it's in the. Okay, drink. <laughs> I mean, they could, you could put the wings on like a skewer, and then like that could be the garnish, like a wing don't, garnish. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to me until it's a Bloody Mary and like a big tankard with like a turkey leg stuck in it. That's, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm here <laughs> that's for. That's what I want. <laughs> turkey leg wrapped in bacon and just like a garden's <laughs> worth of carrots. That's that's all I'm here for. All right, I'm for it. A turducken Mary. <laughs> turducken Mary. Like, a bloody turducken is what it's called. <laughs> a bloody turducken. Yeah, that's exactly oh, what it yes. is. <laughs> that, mm, that's oh, kind Lord. of a horrifying image. People, they, you know what? People just don't think big enough. Yeah. Dream big, fam. <laughs> yeah. Innovate, guys. Be an individual. Think yeah, big. Exactly. <laughs> Trying so right. hard to transition. With the hand fisted transitions, here we go. They're good. We're gonna we're gonna focus in here. If you couldn't catch uh, from, yeah, if you couldn't catch from our hints, our hints twice now, maybe three times of individualism. Tonight we are talking about individualism. Also, twenty something minutes in, I realized. Hey, welcome to the whiskey bench. Oh, hey. Yeah. I hope you all are doing Thanks great. Thanks for sticking with us with one week off last yes. week. That's true. Right. Yes. Thank you. A lot going on, but we're back. Mm-hmm. And we have thoughts. So, Henning, last week, or I guess week and a half ago, sent us over a podcast that was in line or at least an extension of our last episode's topic. And it's a Freakonomics episode uh, specifically about individualism in America. And they're going through a whole series of like six traits of culture or something, I believe, is the uh, little mini-series. But we decided we'd all give it a listen and it was an interesting podcasts and it kind of spurred the thought that we should discuss individualism um, because we kind of go back to it all the time so Henning do you have any interest in launching us tonight I think yeah I mean so I I definitely think the easiest thing it's it's almost like we're assigning homework but everyone should go listen to Freakonomics first I know most podcasts don't encourage like go listen to something else before you continue but mm-hmm. I feel like in that context, it would be very helpful for everyone to hear. In fact, we should probably just put a link in the show notes, Torna. Yeah, yeah we'll do. We I think that would make things very helpful. Um, yeah, so they're kind of, it was a, uh, like a father-son research team developed a rubric for measuring societies across the globe. Um, and their, their six points were individualism versus collectivism. Um, that was number one. Number two, power distance. Number three, masculinity versus femininity. Number four, 
uncertainty avoidance. Number five, short-term versus long-term orientation. And number six is indulgence versus restraint. As far as the individualism conversation, we were definitely flirting with it quite a bit on our last episode. Toward the end of our conversation, we kind of kept dipping in and out of individualism. And I think, Kat, you even mentioned at some point, um, I think we were all kind of feeling like this might be a moment where we're, we're saying the same words, but we're not meaning the same things. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I wanted to start. I wanted to ask what what definition would you like to operate with, Kat? Because that, that'll probably shape most of our evening going forward. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, The Into Podcast. Enjoy some of our favorite bites from today's episode. I think because it ended up being funny that I told Keegan that he literally scared the shit out of me. Mm, yep. <laughs> Three things. Saki bomb, warm soft serve ice cream, and uh, Sharknado underwear. <laughs> I swallowed gum and <laughs> it's down there. It's all stuck. <laughs> and Alex goes, Mommy, I gotta poo. <laughs> and our friends go, again? <laughs> yeah, I got NFTs, non-flushable turds. <laughs> we spark laughter and strive to deepen our understanding of the world. And, the- and now, back to our conversation. I guess in the context of that Freakonomics episode that we listened to, um, they were specifically talking about, uh, well, cultures around the world, but in the when they were discussing individualism, um, they kept kind of comparing other cultures to American culture, mm-hmm. and American individualism is like a unique characteristic of our nation. It's often termed rugged individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think for most of American history, it's that's a characteristic that's been admired. And slowly over the 20th century, and certainly increasingly so more um more loudly, that's that assumption that individualism is a beneficial quality has come under question. So I guess the way I would define American individualism and I guess, and and I think this would be kind of like the general um understanding of what that means. It is it is individual choice. I think it can kind of be boiled down to choice. It's our institutions and our systems that empower the individual to make their own decisions. And that's sort of the essence of 
American freedom. It's that freedom of choice over over our lives. And uh, maybe you could define it as like individual sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the characteristics that kind of frame that American individualism and make it unique to America and make it something that's that's I think historically been benefit for American culture is that it's kind of couched in pragmatism in a political philosophy of individual rights and uh, the idea of equality of opportunity. So I think those those qualities kind of frame American individualism, and I think American individualism ultimately can be boiled down to the idea of of freedom of choice uh, over your life. Does that sound like a fair working definition for this conversation? I like that. I'm into it. Yeah, that seems fair. Okay. Let me refine this a little bit and see if this is within the parameters or if you guys think this is within the parameters of what we're going to talk about. So with having the freedom to make choices, we are saying that American individualism is then equivalent to, you said sovereignty, which I agree with, basically people choosing, you could say destiny, or people being able to create their own destiny. Yeah, I think the idea that your individual choice has power and weight and can determine your future Ooh. and you can you can set that future to look however mm. you want it to. I think that's absolutely kind of an intrinsic character of, or characteristic of of American individualism. Henning, would you say that aligns with kind of the view of American individuals creating your own destiny. Um, yeah. First of all, that phrase is so powerful that I think John Galt himself would give you a standing ovation. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that tracks. Um, basically being able to like forge your own path is what we're mm-hmm. kind of like prizing as the ideal here. Mm-hmm. Tracks for me. I'm in agreement. Prizing as the ideal. <laughs> right. Which is consistent with a lot of the reasons why people came to this country and still continue to come to this country. Mm-hmm. The idea that they... Now, we're talking about individual individualism specifically, but if we go back a little further and take it a little high... Have a view of um, the scene from a, a bit higher elevation... You have groups of people that came here specifically because the group didn't feel like they had an identity or were allowed to express that identity, whether it was persecution or whatever the reason they came yeah, here. Right. It started with kind of a group identity. Oh, that's it. Like a sub. Very interesting. A subgroup, right. right? Then they came to America because they felt like they couldn't express that group's ideology or mm-hmm. whatever. And then it started to shift even more micro scale to now truly individual, like the single person and their pursuit. Right, right. At least that's how I perceive it. What did it. you think of their formulation in the Freakonomics episode of describing individualism as an atom independently working or like 
in free movement in a gaseous state versus Mm -hmm. an atom that is kind of like locked into like a crystalline structure. It's still an individual atom, but it is most definitely part of a, a larger whole. What did you think of that? Uh, I think using the atom analogy is, is correct or accurate. Um, I think it's a good, that's a good way to look at it. And I think no system is truly a rigid formula or formation of people. Right. Because in a gaseous state, any molecule or atom that's aggravated is going to cause some sort of, you know, thermal energy or something like that, which disrupts the whole system. And I think that's accurate. Like a ripple effect. The human story. Oh, yeah, totally. Even in, even in more written, more rigid, you know, uh, cultures or strict right. regimes that we see today, right? There's still maybe it's maybe the analogy is more like it's a semi-solid. Hmm. There's movement there. Nothing's rigid, I don't think. But yeah, but in in their analogy, even we're talking like carbon atoms lock so tightly and so closely together, we have mm-hmm. diamond now, right? So like, right. they're they're describing a feature of societies that using this analogy they're describing a feature of societies that are more collectivist in their approach to public life in that Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily like i I think the best versions of it aren't like some draconian world where like you just have to look like the the guy next to you but it is like we all recognize that we are part of a a much larger crystalline system here. Yes. And that's, I believe towards the end of last week's episode, what I was talking yeah. about. It's what you had a question about. Sh- yeah, exactly. It's the individualism is causing people to think less about the bigger picture of the people around mm-hmm. you. And that can be seen even with like family dynamics now and everything like that. Yeah. They're important things to think about. If we were on just beginning of this conversation here, if we were on zero to a hundred, let's say collectivist is zero and individualism is a hundred, mm-hmm. 50 being straight down the middle, which way do you think your inclinations tip you on that kind of, on that scale? Zero's collective, a hundred is yeah, individualistic. I'm probably around like an eighty, eighty five. I had to give myself eighty five individual, fifteen collective. Okay. Yeah. All right. I wanna say that a year ago I was probably eighty twenty. Eighty twenty individual. And I think I eighty individual collective and i think i might be like 40 60 now wow 40 individual 60 no four yeah yeah sorry 60 40 individual yep oh wow so you've you've crossed what is you've crossed the 50 percent. if this was tug of war collectivism is winning collectivism is winning interesting real quick before you explain your answer I will tell you, yeah. I'm probably 60-40 individualism right now. Yeah. Okay. 
but I want to hear your answer because I love that you already framed this in a year ago. It was this and I quite an evolution, my man, 40%. Yeah. 40% change. Yeah, that's, 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 that's crazy. I, I, you know, there's a lot behind I it. I love this. And, you know, there's evolution that happens there, but I guess it's just, I'm seeing so many people being destroyed. Maybe not literally, mm-hmm. but like, being destroyed by individualism. Like the thought that like, I see so many people that just think that that's all there is. It's like, you have to do all these things. It's you, you have to achieve these things, which are all great, but it's leaving people super hurt and alone and struggling. And I think it's leading to like mass mental health issues and people just being like, it's just me, like, I don't need my community, or like, I hate my family, wow. like, all of these things that I think have let, that are the result of a series or hundreds of years of this individualistic mindset that have just neglected the importance of a community. What are you, what, mm, what were you listening to, reading, watching? a year ago do you think that started you on your movement do you think you could name a few um honestly i mean uh, what i was reading year year ago listening to was all like um self-help stuff and like motivational stuff and business books and like atomic habits and like how to be a better individual how yada 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 (laughs) right and like implemented it and I saw benefits, but it kind of seemed all meaningless. So to revisit cat, I I'm dying to hear your response to Torna's thought here, but just to revisit to make sure we're still speaking in terms of individualism, like Torna, we, we still agree that we are operating with individual choice empowered to Mm -hmm. make uh, free choices with sovereignty informed by yeah. reason and pragmatism with an emphasis on individual rights and equality of opportunity all culminating in basically we're creating our own destiny. Right. Okay. And maybe the biggest shift is that I'm believing less and less that you can create your own destiny. Holy fuck, dude. That is a huge deal so. to say out loud. <laughs> wow. Okay. Cat, we've revisited the definition. I, I want to hear what you have to say now. Please. My just initial thought to one of the points you just or thoughts you just shared, Torna, the idea that that we don't have a good sense of community in our culture today. I think that that is probably fair and largely true that we don't. What I find kind of ironic, though, is that. I think it's probably fair to say that. In. America's cultural past, there were periods of time in just humanity's past where there absolutely was a greater dependence on, there was a need for community. Mm-hmm, 100%. Um, and I think if you want to, if there could be a period of time where like the quintessential rugged American individualism was like at its peak and and was a defining characteristic of american culture and people like valued it 
I would say that correlates really closely with when community was probably strongest in American culture. Mm. So I almost think that our move away from that individualism erodes some of those um, like cultural institutions that are not organized by the state but rather organized voluntarily by individuals Mm -hmm. so again i think we kind of have different definitions of individualism because it seems like you're viewing it as like a kind of like a a self-centered endeavor um whereas i view it more as as literally just like the ability to to make your own decisions and that doesn't mean that you have blinders on and you ignore your family or your friends or your church or your school or whatever that community is that you belong to. But you're free to make decisions that benefit you and the people you care about. And you're free from the burden of having decisions imposed on you. So I don't think being so if that so for me, that definition doesn't limit that doesn't mean that I that I'm if I'm acting as an individual, I'm acting selfishly. It just right. means that I'm, I'm acting in freedom. So maybe this is getting too deep into the, into the weeds here, but like, yes, in the, I guess the case of America specifically, you were talking, the government isn't imposing restrictions on your ability to make decisions. But if you go a step down and you have a certain set of morals or a certain set of what you believe are obligations, those are imposing limits on the decisions you can make. That's now what is in. But you're choosing to believe those things. You're not forced to believe those things unless you're living in a society where you are. Fair enough. If there's a government, you know, national religion or whatever. Forced to. But I think if you're voluntarily choosing to be a part of like. Uh, I don't know, whatever, a Methodist church or whatever, whatever sect of religion you want to sure. choose, like you have made that choice to be a part of that. As an individual, you decided I identify with this and this makes sense to me. I want to be a part of it. Um, So I don't view that as something that's being imposed on you. I view that as something you've welcomed into your so life. So here's another thing that they discuss in Freakonomics is this this concept of freedom, depending on what culture you are raised in and what society you're embedded in we Mm -hmm. these researchers try to distinguish between i think what cat is expressing very well which is more the individualistic like libertarian like i have the freedom to do anything i want to do you know like if i want to stuff my face with potato chips like i have the freedom to do that even though like we know that's unhealthy whereas more collectivist societies. And when I say collectivist, that doesn't even mean it's going to be like even what the modern uh, Chinese state is like, right? Like we're talking about like the Dutch, you know, or. Right. Collective doesn't mean that it's imposed. Right. It's not necessarily communist. It's just saying like, you know, the Finnish have collectivist values over and above American individualism. So like collectivists would hear freedom and. Uh, people who are kind of like simmered in that stew, if you will, they they grow up and learn to value freedom as freedom from like I have freedom from poverty and I have freedom from 
you know, fill in the blank. Um, and whether that need or whether whatever is providing that freedom from something, it could be a, an individual or a group of individuals forming a community to like solve poverty, or it could be the state. But in that case, like, because they're, it's like their brains are literally wired differently so that they, you know, they take either state action or just private community action and hold it with a different angle. You know, I have to just say that what you, what you're referencing from that episode was one of the things I wanted to explicitly like talk sure. about. Yeah. Because the, the, it was the um, professor from Duke, Mark Anthony Neal, I believe was his name. Um, and the way he framed it, Henning, what, what you've just described sounds really reasonable, but what, what Mark Anthony Neal, the way he presented this idea, he, he used the Soviet Union as the example of the collectivist well, yeah. that was uh, community. <laughs> and he said, mm-hmm. and he implied that, that, that the Soviet Union's definition of freedom was somehow like more humane or meaningful because, as you just noted, Henning, they were looking for the freedom from poverty or the freedom from hunger. Right. Okay. And right. then he went on to define American freedom as he sort of implied that it was maybe shallow or superficial because it was, as he put it, quote, the freedom to do whatever the hell yeah. you want. Which I, yeah. I, I was probably guilty and, of doing just now by using a negative example of like gorging yourself on potato chips versus <laughs> having poverty solved. Right. Yeah. So like right. definitely and my like, bias was... And, tipped that direction already probably from the episode (laughs) yeah and like and i don't and i guess i don't know i'm probably going to be just like beating a dead horse here tonight but i feel like the what's unique and beautiful about if we're looking at this as the soviet union's definition Mm -hmm. of freedom versus americans definition of freedom like it is it does to me boil down to like that freedom to to make your own decisions um and the burden of those decisions falls squarely on you, the individual yeah. who's made those choices. And they might be good and they might be mm. bad. But in that, within that freedom, you're held accountable for those decisions. Yeah. And what I find ironic about mm. sort of, and Neil used the Soviet Union as a, an example, but you can look to any like state collectivist society around the world today, like... Obviously, it's quite the opposite. Individuals aren't mm-hmm. empowered to choose for themselves, but there's a state that chooses for them, and the state is made up of elites. And the irony there to me is that, well, maybe I have to back up. Part of the criticism of American individualism is that we think we have a meritocracy, right? And, and that people are, people succeed because of their own merit, their hard work. And in our culture, we believe that like that individualistic streak is what breeds innovation and hard work and therefore success in achieving the American dream. And there's a critique of that, that, that that is missing part of the picture. And the other part of the picture is that the people who succeed often are, are privileged in some way. And so it's not really that they're succeeding because of their own merit. They're succeeding because they have a leg up. Right. And that's one thing in the podcast that I didn't really like, especially was when he was like, yeah, you know, people that succeed, they attribute it to things like intelligence and hard work and yada, 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 which I would agree with. Those are important factors on why you succeed or not. And he's like, but they really neglect things like 
being in the right place at the right time, so on and so forth. Right. And I'm, I believe that a lot less. Well, so one of the ironies I wanted to point out yeah. is that like within a collectivist state that where you have a group of elites making decisions for the vast majority of people or setting the rules for the vast majority of people, those elites have found themselves, they're just lucky enough to be in that position, right? Like. Mm-hmm. They are privileged to be in that position to make the decisions for the vast majority of other people. So I just I don't know. I, I find it ironic because like if that's your framework, there's always somebody who's in who's exploiting privilege to mm-hmm. wield power. Another criticism of that and sorry, Henning, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but another criticism that or I think just another way to look at that that question of is it individual merit that breed success or is it or is it really privilege that's kind of underpinning that that we're ignoring you know some folks would define that privilege as you know well that kid yeah he he went to harvard and got a degree and got a good job and has made a ton of money and he's successful and has the american dream but he got into harvard because like his parents had money and they sent him to a good school. So, you know, he grew up in a privileged setting and of course was going to be successful because he had all of the, you know, he had everything that he needed to, to be successful. But I think you can look at another level deeper and ask, okay, well, what made his, what equipped his parents with what they needed to invest in their child to ensure that he was successful? You know, like Mm -hmm. there's I think I think you can keep like digging into that and it maybe it's a cycle of, well, there's privilege there. But what bred that privilege? Probably a lot of hard work. Right. And and so I I think that's often used kind of as this like trump card. And I don't I don't think it's as powerful as is kind of the. It's in vogue right now to talk about that, but I don't actually know how powerful that really is of an argument that really is because I think you could kind of I think it's a lazy argument you could take take I agree I think you could take steps farther back and discover that somewhere in that quote-unquote privilege there's there's a lot of hard work that underpins it sure right I've gone off on a complete tangent here so dig us back on track (laughs) I hear a frustration with what because I I I agree I, I don't think that argument is that has as many uh legs to stand on as as others do um but what it sounds like to me is we have we have an issue with basically saying it's either the individual is um like their success is attributed to internal traits or it's there are contextual factors um that like contribute to basically the launch pad for for lack of a better word like it's it sounds like we have a problem with the argument becoming an it's it's like either it's an individual just working hard or it's the privilege of of people coming out of a place and and i guess like i do want to explore this more because i i i liked what he pointed out it's something that i've been thinking about quite a bit but it is it's something that i think deserves more of like a both and statement like i i i think Praise be to everyone who who has the like internal character traits that create success. I mean, Torna, the irony of you saying you're you're 40, 60 
or 60, 40 in favor of collectivism is you're like the most individualistic worker that I know. Like you are an independent contractor that answers to like literally no one. Right. So like you give me those numbers and yet you operate in a world (laughs) that's incredibly like you're almost literally flying solo. I know you have a network of people you like to sub out and people you like to draw bids with and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it it really is you behind the LLC, right? He acts as an individual and he makes choices to empower the community around him because it benefits him and it benefits them. He's doing it. And, and and what he, what he started with was essentially saying like, he needs, (laughs) we're speaking of him as if he's not here, but (laughs) he, like he he recognizes the fact that he has a network of contractors that he can lean on, that he can work with, that he can sub out, that he can sub for, all these things, right? Like he he recognizes that he is working in favor of community, and I think what what Torna you're highlighting is the fact that like if you decided that you could literally just like hoist that beam yourself, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is maybe that's also I mean this there's other lines of work sure. obviously, but. It's not so much that I have a community. It's it's quite literally, and I, I don't say this lightly. I would be incapable of doing any job by myself. Right. right. Yeah. So you see right. how, and that's true. I, and that's that's, tr- that's a little bit of stress. There's some jobs I can do by myself, but like in the scheme, the bigger scheme of what I do, it would be impossible for me as an individual to operate without other people to rely on. And that's why communities form, right? Exactly. Like exactly. N- no individual can completely or, you know, happily and for a long period of time provide solely for themselves. Right. Exactly. Right? Like that's, that's why we specialize in different trades and then we trades our trade, our goods and services and sure. Right. I'm on a soapbox. So, that's what a free market sure, is. Sure. Like, that's yeah. So, um, <laughs> I've got, this is kind of off base here, I suppose, but this is harking. This is uh just backing up slightly to Cat talking about the example in this podcast, though the Freakonomics podcast about using Soviet as an example. The Soviets as an example. First, I can't take serious anything that the person says because Stalin is equal to Hitler and all things evil. Second, Mr. Caleb Laszlovy, my roommate, read me a quote just like a few minutes before we started recording that our friend Matt sent him today from a man that was, he might be Russian Orthodox, I don't know, but wrote a book um, after living through the Great Wars and the revolution in Russia and it's about individualism. So I just thought it was timely, but it also mentions Adams socialism, Mm. the whole thing. So I'm going to read it and maybe we can tie this into it one way or another. Uh, But that's the context of how this guy was writing. Mm -hmm. He saw everything that happened in that world, the wars and the revolution as creating some sort of like neo dark ages. And so that's the context. I want to read this book now. It's called The End of Our Time by Nicholas Berdyaev. Berdyaev. (laughs) (laughs) He's Russian. (laughs) Uh, So this is 
I believe starting page 85. Individualism is founded on no eternal principle. It has nothing ontological about it. Least of all, can it strengthen personality and set off the image of man. In an individualistic age, notable in, quote, individualities, comma, strong personalities. <laughs> Why I just said comma, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> Strong person- like, why, did yeah. why did I do that? Uh, <laughs> strong personalities do not flourish at all. The individualistic civilization of last century, again, remember the time he's writing. This is that would be like, you know, mid 1800s. With its democracy and materialism, its technique, its public opinion, its press, its stock exchange and parliament, did much to bring low and kill personality, to enfeeble individuality and to produce a general leveling down and, in quote, mixing. Personality was grander and more striking during the medieval centuries. Individualism has helped on the equalitarian movement, which wipes out all differentiation between individualities. It has led to a sort of atomization of society, and so to socialism, which is only to reverse of breaking down into atoms a mechanical and artificial amalgam of them. And then it continues on. But it's interesting just to see, you know, him writing from this context. And then a little bit later, page 86, he says, Personality exists, again, he's orthodox, exists only where God and the divine are recognized. Otherwise, individualism wrenches personality from its seed plot, pulls it apart, and scatters it to the winds of chance. Individualism has exhausted all its possibilities and energy. It can rouse nobody to enthusiasm. Considering the context and what came next in history, it seems like this, like you uh, missed, wasn't very imaginative or had, didn't have a lot of foresight of what was to come. Potentially, although you gotta remember he's living in Russia. Right, and then after the revolution with collectivism instituted, right, wouldn't you argue that that was a period of time where personality was crushed and innovation was crushed? And true, but you also have to understand that, like, like Stalin did this all in the like claims of an individual like you were saying like all these claims of individuality again this is the the wrong perception of it but like stalin had essentially the bill of rights written the stalin constitution and he promised in his constitution all of the things that american constitution had right so it's all about how it was implemented it was like yeah you have the freedom to do this and the right to do this and everyone gets a free trial yada 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 so you've got this image of the the collective like this is the best for the individual which obviously in practice we see the death of a hundred million people hmm. and the main argument of the quote then if I heard it correctly and I'm taking the analogy further is that we have we have been atomized to our detriment and we should think about becoming molecules again essentially that's kind of how I interpret it. It's, it's not, 
obviously the collectivism that was the result of that right. was awful. But I think what he's saying is that the collectivism that was seen in the past didn't have the same results as the collectivism that was seen in the 20th century. And so I believe what he's saying is there's something was forgotten or the, the, the degradation oh, wow. of the understanding of is this, is this what you were talking about forever ago when you were like something shifted after the enlightenment? Uh, this is part of it that this I've never, this is, I'm just being yeah. introduced to this. So I'm going to read this book now and see what his greater sure. argument actually is. What was this gentleman's name again? This is Boris. Oh no, that's the forward. Uh, Nicholas Berdyaev. B-E-R-D-Y-A-E-V. Yeah. Curious. I like that quote. Thanks for sharing, Torna. I have a few examples kind of spinning in my head. Um, still, because I, I want to revisit the idea of like, it's a both and conversation that deserves to be had mm-hmm. with individual character traits um, helping an individual succeed and keeping in mind their, their contextual place in the world and, and all that. I think, I, I think of a few stories off the top of my head. So you guys probably didn't see it cause you didn't watch Hamilton either, but, um, lit. I, I, oh, that's I, right. I, I've I'm seen sorry. Hamilton. But you probably, did you see in the Heights when it came out <laughs> the other Lin-Manuel Miranda musical? Uh, no, okay. I didn't know so that was this a thing. is a, another fantastic musical by Mr. Miranda. And, uh, this one is set in the Washington Heights of New York. It kind of centers okay. this uh, Latino community that has been part of the Washington Heights for uh, quite a few de- generations at this point. And it's, it's, a, it's where he grew up, which is why he wrote his first musical about it. Kind of a, uh, a love story um, with the place he grew up. And, and very much like this is coming out of a Latino culture that is uh, far more collectivistic than we we tend to be in in america and other parts of america for sure um and there's there's one story in particular with where like the valedictorian of her high school you know she graduates and she goes to her first semester of college you know um and she's like basically the whole community kind of like pitched in to send her to college but even after the first semester She's realizing she doesn't have enough money, so she comes back and starts having a lot of conversations with her with her uh her dad and the other members of the community that that were kind of part of the deal and basically like a lot of the the story is her kind of grappling with the sense of like she feels like she's betraying her community by going out and doing you know the American dream thing you know going to the going to college going to the big college and like pursuing the degree to the sense is like she feels guilty for having a desire or having a want to like break free of the heights, which is something that they mentioned in this Freakonomics episode is that in an individualistic culture, when, when someone goes and innovates and succeeds, which again, I think that is great. I personally think that is great. An individualistic culture would say like, look at that entrepreneur go. Thank you, Elon Musk for everything you do. Right. More collectivistic cultures essentially take the same action by the same person and they, they, like, the community feels it as an indictment against the way that community raised that individual who went and did that thing. Right, exactly. It could be interpreted as, like, 
why are you leaving? Like this, like right. our this our people are here. Or like our people blank. do this this way. Right. You know. Uh, even even the the conversation of like, what's your favorite food? Like individualistic cultures, we'll just go name our favorite foods. But usually in collectivistic cultures, if you ask them what their favorite food is, they're probably going to mention a recipe their grandma made when they were growing up, right? Because of like everything just ties back to the way the family, the way the community like is the unit that they operate out of. So that, right. that story came to mind um, because in, in that case, like, you know, she's the valedictorian of her school and, you know, she has the grades, she has the enthusiasm, she has the drive, she wants to go do the thing. And yet her context, like, builds something else for her, you know, like, apart from just the, uh, the question of how she's going to pay for the rest of school, like, there's, there's a real internal struggle for her feeling like she's betraying her family for getting out of the Heights, you know, for leaving, uh, the New York area, all that. The other one, I don't, I don't know if you guys have heard this. The podcast is called, have you heard George's podcast? Um, which as far as names go, not my favorite, but as far as like content goes easily, like one of my top three favorite podcasts of all time. And I'm subscribed to a hundred. So big deal. Um, <laughs> just flashing my credentials there. That was mean. He, uh, George, the poet is a, a black, like, uh, spoken word artist and uh, poet and rapper that came out of Britain and he grew up okay. like on the streets basically grew up around the Mendem uh, gang there in, in Britain Um, and a lot of his podcast kind of dissects again this kind of the sense of like I grew up on the streets and I kind of feel bad that I made it big like with my own music and like a lot of a lot of his stuff is kind of grappling with how do I keep making music or how do I make a, a a podcast or works of art that catch attention of like the kids that are growing up on the same same streets and like how do we address like how do we address what's happening because many many people feel like in the Freakonomics book I don't know if you guys have read that but there's a couple mm, of fascinating chapters about basically gangs in I think San Diego. Oh gosh, I forgot, forget what city. Um, but the thing I was reminded of today is basically like a lot of, a lot of kids, especially that grow up in gang areas in large cities, basically they, they have a sense of like the gang is pretty much what you do when you come of age, because it's like, it's unfortunately just part of the culture and you just get like wrapped into it to gain street cred to gain recognition to gain some modicum of power in a place and there's a there's a lot of social pressure yeah, to not right, exactly to stray from to not stray from right that yeah group. absolutely yeah um right so that was the other story i was thinking of because like i think i mean like lin-manuel miranda himself is a case study and like he is an individual that for for lack of a better term he did kind of like break out of the heights but he still he writes a musical about it right to kind of highlight the beauty of that culture that is there in the washington heights same with have you heard george's podcast like it's it's kind of it's it's the kind of thing where like they i feel like are artists that are having the conversation of yes i'm the individual that did this and yes i still have like i struggle with the context i grew up with and they're trying to call attention to any sense of like 
you know, because I grew up on the streets and because there was social pressure to be in a gang, like it's not as simple as just, we'll go to college. Just you can have all the inner character traits that would attribute to anyone's success in an entrepreneurship driven world. But for them, like listening to their story, like it actually did matter and does matter. And they still grapple with to this day as adult men from two very different cultures. Like they still grapple with like where they came from and senses of guilt they have coming from cultures that put more emphasis or more value on family, community, and like collective, right? Yeah, that that makes sense. And I mean, part of that is just everyone has a, I don't know, it's part of your natural history almost. I mean, as it, every, every individual has a natural history of some sort. Um, things, the family you're from, who, you know, every, every little part builds who you are in some way right. or another, I suppose. So you can't, I don't know if you can just, I guess, yeah, I guess part of it is like, the idea is you have the freedom to make choices and no one imposes it on you. But as you focus in, all this natural history, everything. You're products of our environment. Yeah, whether you're aware yeah. of it or not, are dictating your yeah, convictions right. on the more conscious front or the decisions mm-hmm. you make subconsciously. I think um, part of what that story you just shared, Henning, what the thought that that triggers in my mind is um, that often a criticism of more collectivist cultures is that there tends to be less innovation and, and creation in those communities because they're kind of bogged down by the tradition mm-hmm. and that's where american individualism like that's part of why that has been idolized for a long time because that that um that emphasis on individual choice and merit it it creates more opportunity for for new ideas exactly and with more new ideas there's more good ideas right and with more good ideas there's more there are more breakthroughs, there's more innovation, there's more prosperity. Yeah, that blew my mind. What was the stat in that Freakonomics? What the percentage of patents that come out oh, of America I versus the rest of the it world? It was a huge, like, oh, I don't know. dramatic number. Is it 60% of the world? I don't quite remember. It was a lot. It was more than half, mm-hmm. which is nuts. Yeah, so there is, like, there is quantifiable... Right. evidence to, to Qual- suggest yeah, that, and it's, that it's in fact true that individualistic yes. cultures do create more um, innovation and yes. prosperity. And there's so there, I mean, there really is some legitimate truth to like American innovation. Right. Like that's yeah, for sure. But it's funny to think too, you know, again, only a couple hundred years, a few hundred years. It's wild. I had, um, a couple of quotes. It's funny we're sharing quotes tonight because I had a couple of quotes that I wrote down too that I thought uh, did a really nice job of articulating what I've been been trying to to share. And they're from uh, 
both are from the same essay by that's co-authored by um, David Davenport and Gordon Lloyd mm, that mm-hmm. um, were Hoover fellows. Um, and so I'll just uh, let me see here. Yeah, I'll just read two of them. Um, so the first says. Equal opportunity, the demand for a fair chance became the formula of American individualism because it is the method of American achievement. And I think that gets at what we were just talking about, like that individualism fueled achievement. And so it became a core piece of our culture because it yielded good results. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other kind of gets at what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. Um, It says, America did not begin with the church or the state or the king as a center of things, but instead the individual. It is the individual who is the unit of analysis in America and everything else proceeds as a series of choices from the starting point. We may choose a government or church or a particular kind of society, but those choices are made by Americans as individuals. That gets at like my my understanding mm-hmm. of American individualism yeah. anyway, where it doesn't separate you from from the community, but empowers you to choose your community. And I think another thought from that kind of stemmed from what you were talking about, Henning, just a moment ago, um, those stories that you shared, I think part of the frustration that that Freakonomics episode was trying to get at that, that maybe, maybe torn to your feeling in American culture is, is that maybe we're like, maybe we're just lacking culture. Oof. I feel um, that so hard. Right. Yeah, and I think people then kind of I I would suggest misinterpret individualism as as like a self-centered focus that is void of any of that is void of culture and and that leads us to just be kind of materialistic and so I guess void of like a, a fr- fruitful culture that mm. people are pleased with, right? Like sure. You can yeah. your culture Which can be materialistic. Definitely brings right? us back so, to the conversation of like self-centered versus self-enhancing versus self-interest right like mm-hmm. yeah right right they right. all get they all get very sticky even mm-hmm. though we're all prepending with self you know which is something yep. I've, I've been struggling with even yeah. tonight like having this conversation because like i i feel myself wanting to slip back into like like either self-enhancing or self-serving it even self-serving like i guess it doesn't have to be negative i just I'm tuned right. I'm tuned to before, hear it right? negatively mm-hmm. right now. And I'm I'm working on <laughs> combating that. Right. And part of it too is the uh, at least how I perceive the understanding of individual not individual sorry uh, of self-serving in the western sense is looking at it from like a neo-darwinistic right. yeah. sense which everything goes back to the basic fundamentals of like survival right. of the fittest yep. natural selection like that's the neo-darwinistic mm-hmm. perspective mm. and if that's your worldview which it is for a lot of people that's all it can be worked right. down to now you can with wow. reason and logic say okay i know that this is the root so now i'm going to choose consciously to do it a different way even though I know that this is how yeah. it works. That's viewing it through that worldview. Um, that, which is I don't think I've ever thought of it that um, way before. To understand. Like in our secularizing culture that like increasingly does not mm-hmm. profess faith in like 
any kind of like religion. Like, of course that worldview is neo-Darwinistic in the sense of like, in like that pure atheistic framework, it is like, it is natural selection. So of course, self-interest is going to be interpreted as 100% selfish. Wow. I think we've just kind of stumbled into maybe what that, that, what's the metaphor? I don't know. Missing. We've stumbled into what that thing is wow. that changed. Because mm-hmm. if we look at, as I was saying at the beginning of this episode, like, it seems to me that we had a stronger sense of culture or excuse me, a stronger sense of community within American culture, you know, a century ago at a time when rugged individualism was highly valued. And today that rugged individualism is is frankly under attack in some circles and and certainly questioned in many. Right. Um, And yet I think we have we have. We have less we don't have a very strong sense of community. And is it is it the fact that we have become more our culture has become more secular? Yeah. So then our worldview, our fundamental worldview, yeah. to your point, Torna, has changed. Mm-hmm. And so that that the way we perceive our fellow man and human beings is fundamentally yeah. different now. Yeah. And therefore, our definition of individualism has fundamentally changed right. as a culture. I think that's it and right this there. is important too, because it sounds like I'm harking on individualism really hard and that I don't value it. I do. And history has shown that obviously there have been great people all throughout history that truly were the people that stood out during their time. Sure. But also, we have to look at the historical context here that individualism, as we're understanding it and how we've perceived it the last 300 years, it's only been perceived this way for 300 years. <laughs> you go way back. You right. have so the, Greek, the Greek philosophers that started talking about, in quote, individualism, but that's not really, they didn't have the same view of it, right? Mm-hmm. Individualism didn't exist, really. Yeah. Then you have the Roman Stoics that really started to interpret the Greek writings as being individualistic and starting to, through Stoicism, promote kind of that rugged individualism and betterment and all that stuff. But then you still look at the context of the time, very collective. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right? And then, totally. then you move down the road 1,500 years, then you get to enlightenment. Mm. And then they're using Stoicism and Greek philosophy and now science and logic and reason. But again, I can't, I don't know what, like we went through the whole you know, French philosophers and English philosophers and all that stuff. It's just inter- it's interesting. But this, because there was a tie, there was a more intimate tie maybe between the individual and the collective. Yeah, right. Yeah, because we've lost another one of those well, legs the moral- you talked about. Yeah, yeah, that's the a leg, good, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the moral underpinning of that culture informs how it manifests right and so we are a product of our environment as you were getting at and so if our so if if that fundamental moral underpinning has changed in american culture then everything else the definition of everything else is going to change as well and maybe that is why we're having because it does feel like our culture collectively is having an identity crisis right you know and we can talk about we can talk about individualism which 
was really at our founding was a fundamental principle underpinning the American experiment and was kind of a core principle to what we did here and and to our success as a nation and as a people. And. And now and now we're questioning that. And I wonder, are we questioning it because. Well, I guess in part we are for some folks because who are displeased with our history, but like, I think that there has, there's something in the foundation that has shifted that's mm-hmm. changed our definition of these things. And it's changed how True. they may, maybe it's changed how they manifest in real life today. Maybe it just simply produces different results than it once did. I just had a breakthrough thought for Love myself. It. And I don't know, I don't know if this is true, obviously, but maybe the shift was at the founding of America, people had a good sense of self. They knew who they were. And so they came to America to be the fullest version of who they knew they were because they had the freedom to do that. And now we're in a society where it's, you can become anything you want and people don't know who they are. Wow. So they can't express, they can't express the fullness of who they are because they haven't, they don't know, they what, don't it is. know what that is. Hmm. And then it gets it gets presented in a perverted way or how, how I would see it as a perverted wow. way. Yeah, because mm-hmm. if you as an individual are having an identity crisis, tell, being told that you can become anything you want to be without a sense of what you already are, who you already are, who and you no already guiding belong principles to, because right, you don't. no guiding principles. Yes. Yeah. Then, mm-hmm. whereas it was founded on, you can come here and be the fullest, best version of who you are. Wow, Torna, this is so good. Because if you don't know who you are, then you're just like an empty vessel waiting to for waiting for anyone with like an outsized level of power or influence to just like pour in that cup and be like, I'm going to tell you what you're like, actually. Right. And that harkens back to the, was it Rousseau and the blank slate? But his understanding of blank slate was through your development as a child. But now we're seeing, it, are people just blank slates wow. for the entirety of their life? Wow. wow. Mm. I don't know. That was a moment of silence that was well-deserved. That was good right there. <laughs> wow. I love that. I think what we've successfully done here is, at least I feel satisfied in like, trying to have a conversation that is both and individual and the context. Cause like cat, even, even you saying we're a product of our environment, like I think the best, most charitable version, which is of course how I read it because I'm full of bubbly optimism is that the fact that we are a product of our environment should be what most people mean when they say like, let's think about the context in which we're coming from. The mm-hmm. meme version, of course, is just like, you have privilege, fuck you, this person does not have privilege, so they should have yours, or something. I don't know. That's the meme version. Right, right. But I think we've successfully had the conversation right, that makes exactly. it both and, that holds space for both, in my mind. I think it's important. And I, real quick, I just wanted to touch another element of that podcast, yeah. which I think is really important. Again, me sounding like I'm really becoming anti-individualist but i'm not i'm just looking for a more intimate relationship between the individual and the the collective but the dance the tension yeah (laughs) 
the podcast pointed out that like, and, and I don't know if they painted it in a good or bad light. I perceived it more as like, oh, European countries like France and everything, like they don't work as much and yada, yada, yada. Whereas Americans work a lot harder, everything like that. That might be true, but I don't know. They're very different right. things. And if you look at the wealth and success of people in America versus other countries that are more laxed in their, in quote, work ethic, you see, again, they're just different. Because here's a very important thing. I know someone that immigrated here when he was very young, I think 20 or 19 from France. Um, grew up in France. He understood French culture, right? His family all lives in in France. Well, he visited for the first time when he was 20. And then I don't think he actually immigrated until he was like in his thirties and slowly started mm. a business here, yada, yada, yada. And I'm, I think he's in his fifties now. He has something like 170 employees. He's got 10 businesses all across the United States in different places. And I was talking to him the other day. He said, Stephen, I love America so much. He's hilarious. He's amazing. All of his cars are Fords. He's got like a 40 by 60 foot American flag <laughs> in the garage. He's like the coolest dude ever. But he's like, I don't do what I'm doing because of the money. He's like, I have a lot of money, right? He's like, I've got all these businesses. I make a ton of money. But he's like, I employ 170 yeah. people. Hell yeah, and he's dude. like, I would have never in 10 lifetimes been able to achieve this in France. He's like, it's just a culture and a, and a system that's just not conducive to doing this. Mm -hmm. There's some context totally. there, right? And through the end quote individualism, he's able to build this awesome collective of almost 200 people that have great salaries and make things and build things and are serving people in the yeah. network. But that took the sacrifice of him grinding here with that, wow. you know, yeah, right. Working hundred hour weeks and walking fast everywhere you go. And right, right. That may be negative thing, but that can is, have really good fruits. That is like that story right there. That anecdote is, in my mind, the perfect definition of what rugged individualism in America looks like. Right. It's an embodiment of someone that gets that tie that I'm trying to understand better mm -hmm. and honestly imitate better. That's very good. I like you highlight too the emphasis on the word different, not necessarily being better or mm -hmm. worse. I appreciate that. I think that's that's good to recognize because like, you know, Spanish culture their value system is set up in such a way that the siesta is just what they do mm -hmm. and they love it. And I'm honestly a little bit jealous of it, but that's just me. That's just exactly. It depends on your value system, it right? It does, exactly. You know? and, I mean, and the fact the, that their value system is different doesn't mean it's better or worse than America's. It's just right. we're here now, right? We're in, enjoying the, the benefits and the pitfalls of our culture. They have their own, you know, and so it's, it's what my friend Emily sure. Unravel says all the time is like, different is not good or bad. It literally is just different. And I like that point. Speaking right. of Ravel, my friends, Mr. Steven Torna is featured this week on this episode of Ravel. It's coming Ooh. out. Is it this week's yes. episode? It will be okay. out by Yay. the time this whiskey bench is out. Cool. So please come over to Ravel 
My Worlds Collide, Josh, Stephen, and I talk about American Christianity and um, how political Political leanings leanings. and how those sometimes line up. Oh, right. And we talk Mm -hmm. about Orthodox Christianity a lot because that's what Torna is into. It's very good. Come over to Ravel. It was a good one. Yeah. Very proud. Plus, y'all can listen to, to Josh. Another on member of uh, Highland Network. Network. Thank you. Any final thoughts, my friends? I loved this conversation. I think we might have kind of lifted the seal on on some kind of really important ideas that I think um, a lot of folks in our culture today are trying mm-hmm. to yeah to understand. And I think we I think this conversation led us down a cat. Do you path. feel like at at by the end of this? What's your sense of, cause I, I was very nervous of having another conversation that was just like us talking past each other. Yeah. Talking past what each other. What is your sense yeah, now? Totally. Do you feel at peace with <laughs> no, where I we've think, landed? Oh, I do so for glad. sure. Yeah. I think there was a, a turning totally. point halfway through the conversation where we realized like maybe what is at the root of this fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of this word. Mm-hmm. Um, not between us necessarily, but just like within our modern culture. Well, good. I'm glad. So yeah, I think we. I want to close with a a little, uh, at least how I perceive this conversation tonight, to encourage people to have conversations like this with friends that have varying views, because I entered this conversation tonight uh, confused, wanting to work through some stuff, and I'm able to put it out on the table, and I can tell. Okay, something I said didn't mesh with Kat. She didn't like something I said, per se. <laughs> but she's listening, and now she's mm-hmm. helping me work through that so we both understand each other better. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Henning. And then you guys gave me fuel, and I hope maybe I offered some fuel, and I had that breakthrough moment, and now I've less, left this conversation a lot less confused. Cheers. So don't be, don't be afraid to put stuff out on the table or... You know, a lot of what I say, I don't necessarily believe, but it's just, it's on my mind and I need help organizing it. So some, don't, of the, some of those plant, plant thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, those plant thoughts. So like, <laughs> don't be afraid, find people, find, find people you trust and don't be afraid to put things out on the mm. table. Mm. Explore ideas. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Also a reminder, you can have bench. conversations like this with people you haven't previously met yet, like Kat and I, when we started Whiskey Bench. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> exactly. It's true. That's the beauty of the internet. You can find Absolutely. like-minded people without ever meeting them. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like-minded people, but uh, people. There's something that... like-minded, even if we disagree. Yeah, there is. There's something like-minded about being different, yeah. but open to your interested life... in the same, exploring the same yeah. ideas yeah. from different perspectives. It's it's yeah. an interesting tie that that single tie of. Being able to listen to, uh, engage with, try to understand, and continue a relationship with ideas that you might be fundamentally against is such a strong tie. You can hold that almost most dearly. That's good. Which is interesting. I call it a metaphysical attitude is what we have in kindred spirit mm. here. It's good. Meditude. meditude cheers, my friends. Meditude. <laughs> All cheers. right. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. 
If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Welcome to the Into Podcast, where we seek to insight, insight, pursuing truth for the sake of wonder. Meet my parents. That's, That's us. us. I'm Pops. I'm the cotton candy queen. My wife, Katie. Hello. My best friend, Kevin. Am I the best friend or the wife? And me, Alex. Hey. Join us to have an honest and encouraging conversation about whatever it is that we're into. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.